Hey there, it's Randy, one of the pastors here at Vernon First Baptist Church, and we are continuing on in our series as we go into Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12, where there's a pretty dramatic twist. We go into the second half of this whole vision, and as I encouraged in the last uh, sermon, some uh, encouragement to stick with it as we continue through and i think there's some beautiful things that jesus has for us even through some of this stuff that's coming up so i encourage you to to enter in with a full heart as i turn it over to hannah my wife to do our first part of the scripture reading for today today's reading is from revelation 12. You have to buckle your seatbelts. This is a really intense scene. I want you to play the Flight of the Valkyries while I read it or something like dun 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 dun. Just imagine there's music in the background, intense music. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, thank you, Hannah. Yeah, and thanks for that image of of music background. I don't know if they would have had music when they were going through this. But if we remember, if we remember back to when this was first read to the early church, it would have been a bit of a dramatic presentation. Readers were chosen with a, with a special ability to, to portray the letters that were written, and especially something like this. It would have been somewhat of a, a performance of reading this to help the imagination be spurred on. Now, I don't know what stood out to you when you heard that. Now, there's more to this passage, and we'll look at it a little bit more as we go through, but this, the idea of a dragon stands out to me. I've always loved dragons, the stories of dragons. Can you think of any famous dragons? Anyone? Pete. Pete, yeah. Pete with Puff. Was it Pete and Pete and... Pete the Magic Dragon, yeah. What else? Any other ones? Puff the Magic Dragon, yeah. Smog, yes, from J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. 
Yeah, there's dragons in, in, from Tolkien, from Lewis, C.S. Lewis in Narnia, the, the image of Eustace and, and his dragon, incredible. To uh, how about Robert Munch, paperback princess, and the dragon in that. That's a famous, I love that dragon. Or Falcor from which movie? The Neverending Story. Yeah, at least my wife knows that one. Love it. And then there's epic stories like Wizard of Earthsea with countless dragons in it. Amazing. Even in Harry Potter or others authored by Paulini, um, Eldest, and uh, Aragon, J.R.R. Martin. You might have heard of him. Uh, pretty, pretty famous author that has done all sorts of great, uh, well, I wouldn't say necessarily great. I'm not necessarily recommending it but epic sweeping stories of Game of Thrones and now House of the Dragon. Of course, then there's one that I know one of our youth that graduated last year, one of her favorites, one of my favorites, How to Tame a Dragon. Yeah, Cressida Cole. And this one in particular, this is, I think, a sequel, The Hidden World. How to Tame a Dragon, The Hidden World. That could be a subtitle of this chapter. I thought about actually subtitling this sermon, How to Tame a Dragon, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So now, why all this talk of dragons? Well, one of the main characters in this chapter, and even for the next little while, is a dragon. And we get to see how this seemingly untamable dragon, with its seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its heads, these symbols of incredible power. Uh, this dragon should be untamable, unconquerable, this incredible dragon. And we get to see how it's dealt with, and in fact, how we can deal with it. As John's apocalyptic vision, this unveiling of a larger existence outside of what we normally see. That's what apocalypse means. Let's not forget that. A wonderful thing that the early church would have been excited about when they heard apocalypse. Oh, we're going to get to see into the hidden world? Oh, awesome. It wasn't doom and gloom to them. It was this image of what's going, what is going on in the unseen world. And it continues and takes a fairly dramatic turn in what he sees in this chapter. At the end of chapter 11, we saw the witnesses, the seventh trumpet, all, uh, building up to this sort of dramatic conclusion in some ways. Chapter 11 seems like a conclusion. And there's an opening of heaven. And in heaven, we see the heavenly temple. And within the heavenly temple, we see the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark was the symbol of God's presence and and John is being encouraged in this vision. Think God is present. The ark is not lost. All is not lost. God is present to his church. This great dramatic ending in chapter 11. And then it seems like maybe it's a bit of an intermission. There's a big dramatic switch. Maybe, maybe when there was a dramatic reading for the early church, they'd take a pause. Whew, refill the popcorn. I'm not sure what else they would do, you know. Take a little break, and then into chapter 12. Cue the music. 
As that first half ends, the image of God's presence in the temple leads us to this next half, the final half of the vision, this book, this letter. And chapter 12 starts with this new sign in the heavens. John sees a woman. Well, clear enough, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Okay, well, this is a bit of a different woman. What are we talking about now, John? And this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Some of us get that more than others of us. Some of us, you might remember that. You might have blocked it out. And then there's another sign. Another sign, it says, appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with the seven heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars. And that dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might, depending, sometimes whoever was standing in front of you when you were trying to give birth might have looked like a red dragon to you at times too. Eh? I'm not sure about seven heads, but you might have yelled at whoever it was like that. And it stood there so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. What is going on here? It's quite the turn from what we've seen so far. And she gave birth to a son, verse 5 says, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child, did the dragon get it? No, snatched up to God and to his throne. To his throne. John's trying to tell us, this image is trying to tell him, and he's trying to tell us that God isn't playing a game of thrones. God is on the throne, and we need to know that. Well, you read this, there's so many questions that come to my mind. Who is this woman? Who's the child, this dragon, giving birth? And what's the timing here? What's going on? If this male child who will rule all the nations is who I think it is, what does Christmas, the birth of Jesus, have to do with Revelation? Why is this placed here? Why do we have this cosmic Christmas played out for us in this vision, in Revelation, this apocalypse? Well, the vision John receives and passes on to us is this dramatic retelling of the birth of Christ. And it takes Jesus from birth to ascension, all in one motion. The shortest Christmas story ever in one way. Now, some say that we, if we are to receive this vision, that we are to be looking up, looking up for this sign in the sky. And in fact, you could take a look on YouTube and you could spend hours watching uh, YouTubers, different various preachers saying, oh, we got to be watching. 7,000 years ago, there was this played out in the sky and it, and it just recently happened again. And uh, so what does that mean? And they can talk on and on about it and keep looking up. They want to keep looking up at the sky. Yet we've clearly understood so far 
that in an apocalyptic genre, much of what we read is symbolic. Though we could say, oh, there is a constellation of a woman in the sky, and at times the sun is at her head and the moon is at her feet. Is that really what John is trying to get us to believe and to look for in the sky? Is he writing more uh, an imagery that isn't about literal ideas, but images that point to something else? And some might say, well, obviously the woman in the story is Mary. It's Mary. Mary's the one that gave birth. Yet most theologians, as they read this, show how this woman represents the historical Jewish community, the messianic community that was promised to produce the Messiah. The 12 stars being a symbol of the 12 tribes of this Jewish community. So it takes the Christmas story and gives it this messianic spin that Israel is to produce. And there's a number of verses in the Old Testament that actually point to this. Micah has a couple of them. Micah 5 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel... Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. There's a symbol of Israel in labor. Israel, God's people, about to produce the Savior of the world. And who is there to get in the way? Well, yeah, it's Jesus who's to be born. And the dragon is the one who wants to cause trouble. Now, why a dragon? It's not just my fascination with dragons. That's not why John is writing this. He didn't look ahead and say, well, Randy's going to really appreciate this. In fact, there's been a fascination about dragons throughout ancient history. The serpents of the sky, some would say. Leviathan, we see that through Scripture. The serpents of the sea. Not only in Scripture... But throughout the myths and tales of the ages, the Greeks had a similar story of Apollo fighting Python, as did the Egyptians with their great serpent and their heroes fighting it. This goes way back. John is revealing that these myths, the myths that oh, the whole world knew, believed, they are made true in one sense in the story of Jesus. That even going back to the very beginning of the story, when we see the serpent in the garden, we see that it said, the serpent will bruise the head of Eve's offspring, but her seed will crush the serpent's head. This is the promise. So this serpent that we know, in ancient folklore, you put a serpent, you put a snake in the sky, and what do you have? You have a dragon. And John sees this great battle foretold of Eve's offspring versus this serpent played out in this vision. Echoes of the great enemy seeking Jesus' life 
And we think back to the Christmas story, we can see that, how Herod slaughtered all the innocents, all those under two, trying to get to Jesus, the enemy working through him, whispering in the ears of the Pharisees to kill Jesus throughout his earthly ministry and life. And even the enemy, this great serpent, worming his way into Judas's heart to give Jesus up at the end. Eugene Peterson says, I thought I had it here, but maybe I don't. It says this, This is not the nativity story we grew up with. But it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Herod, Judas, Pilate, ferocious wickedness is goaded to violence by this life. Can a swaddled infant survive the machines of terror? Can promise outlast horror? We want him to live. We long for this rule. But is it possible in this kind of world? Well, unfortunately, for the dragon, who John tells us in verse 9 is the devil, the great Satan. Satan simply meaning accuser. He didn't realize that Jesus' plan as the lamb was to give his life on behalf of his people. And while the enemy rejoices at the death of Jesus, Jesus rises again and ascends. Or as John says it, the male child is snatched up to safety. And this makes the dragon furious in our narrative, with war in heaven breaking out and the dragon being cast out. Now, I can't figure out why none of our Christmas carols sound like this. You know, this is a Christmas story, after all. Anyone up for writing a couple? We can maybe sing them this uh, Christmas. Now, a quick aside. With apocalyptic literature, John's goal here, once again, is not a, a clear doctrine of how and when Satan is cast out of heaven, but that he was. And we could spend some time that we're not going to, to unpack the theology of when we say, where does, where does Satan come from? Where does this great enemy come from? That the image that we have from Scripture is that he was a great angel and was cast down out of heaven, perhaps given a free will, a free choice and rising up against God. These are things that we're not 100% sure on, so we're not going to take the time to unpack, but that he was cast down. For it's hard to think that it waited until Jesus ascended before Satan was cast down out of heaven. I think that happened a while ago, and yet they're merged together in one sense in an apocalyptic literature. So Satan was cast down, and though presents as strong and dominating like he does here in this chapter, is truly powerless before our Lord Jesus. 
So how do, the question, of course, that I want us to ask is, how do we tame this dragon? What happens here in this passage? And then, what do we do? Well, I think it's clear that this says that he's already lost. He's been cast down. And though what goes on here, this next passage, it's not a Christmas carol, but there's a song that's sung that comes in 10 and, uh, 10 and 11 and 12. And it says this, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, again, this is the word for Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Has been hurled down. He's already lost. A good image that we can often use uh, for this is the, is the historical World War II ending. We had a D-Day where it was clear that the war was over. Well, was that the end of the war? No, there was many that kept on fighting. And eventually, there was a VE Day, a Victory in Europe Day. And I know in, in Asia, the Japanese fought on even longer before it was all over. And we can have this symbol that we recognize, though Satan is defeated and cast down, he is continuing to fight. He's continuing to fight. And even though he's lost, we're going to have to wait until he faces his just end and battle against this dragon in the meantime with his limited power. So how are we to do that? Well, I want to say a couple things. One, in verses uh, 6 and 13, we see that the woman is whisked away to the wilderness. In verse 13, uh, she's actually given wings to fly, like on the wings of eagles, taking that image from Isaiah, to fly. There are times where we need to take a break, take a retreat. Sometimes we find the fight too much. And it's okay to pull back. I know sometimes in some circles when they've had a church retreat, some people have said, no, no, Christians don't retreat. We need to call this a Christian advance. That we're only going to advance. Well, the reality is sometimes we need to take a break. And we need to go to the wilderness to refocus, to replenish our strength. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, how else are we to tame this dragon? I think it's clear that we have to follow the example of Jesus and others. And Jesus was a great example of taking those breaks. When the disciples, all these people gathering, and they're looking for him. Jesus, everyone's crowded around. There's so many sick. You've got to come do it. And he's off praying. And they find him. He says, no, we're moving on to another city. Oh, I'm going to take some time to pray. I'm going to take some time apart. So that's clear from Jesus. But what else? Ultimately, we know that the dragon has lost. So how are we to tame him, to 
to defeat him ourselves? Because the reality is, Scripture says, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he was furious. There's these images of uh, the serpent spewing water like a river to overtake the, the earth, opening up these uh, Old Testament images. The earth opening up and swallowing the water to save the people. And then the dragon was enraged, verse 17 says, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep, the, keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So, the enemy is waging war. How do we battle against it? And the battle is going to continue, let me say, in chapter 13. And it gets a little bit more complicated, even political. And we're going to be taking a look at a little bit of that. But John is clear how this dragon was defeated and hurled down and how we can take a strength from that to defeat him ourselves. Let's take a look back at verse 11. Verse 11 says, They triumphed over him. Now this word triumph is fascinating. It's the Greek word Nike. Have any of you heard that word before? Any of you wearing them right now? Maybe Nikes. I'm not wearing Nikes. But it doesn't mean just do it. That's not what the Greek word Nike means. It doesn't mean just do it. It means to overcome, to be victorious, to subdue. No wonder they chose that name, the goddess of victory. But as opposed to victory by power here, it isn't dominance and subjugation by force. The way of the lamb is much different. The way they overcome is much different. John clarifies here that they triumphed, they Nike'd, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Incredible. Absolutely incredible and a challenge. You want to tame a dragon? Well, you need to expect to fight. And you need to fight like Jesus. All right, I think I have this one from Eugene. Yeah, listen to this. Our response to the nativity cannot be reduced to shutting the door against a wintry world, drinking hot chocolate and singing carols. Rather, we are ready to walk out the door with, as one psalmist put it, High praises of God in our throats and two-edged swords in our hands. Can that be our response to the nativity? Can we believe that Christ's death and resurrection has taken any true power from the enemy and that we can wage war? That we can fight this great dragon and offering himself... Jesus, being willing to shed his own blood, has won the battle for us. Death couldn't hold him. The enemy has lost its power. 
In a little bit, we're going to sing these words. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake you died. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he would defeat the power of the enemy for our sake. And in the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath till the stone was moved for good, for the lamb, the lamb had conquered death. The lion who becomes the lamb. By his blood, we can overcome. Believing in his death and in his resurrection. And then it says, by the word of their testimony. What are they getting at here? What is John saying? To be true to Jesus, living in the true life that he offers. Not to shrink away when threatened or tempted to live another way. You remember those who are receiving this vision, what we heard in the messages to the seven churches? How they had warnings about compromising? Stay true to Jesus was the call. Don't give in to the empire, not to their ways, not to their money, their business practices, their idols. Keep your focus on Jesus. And it may cost you. John is clear that it may cost them everything, but that we can conquer by not shrinking, even from being willing to die. That we can die with great dignity, willing to bear our cross in this life, even with grace and strength. And even as we sang earlier, when our strength is failing, even when our strength is failing, sometimes that's when the enemy wants to worm his way into our thoughts and into our hearts, creating fear and anxiety. And we can battle against them. We can say, no, no, no. Not today. Not today, you red dragon. This is the year of the dragon. I don't know if that bears any uh, weight on it. It just gives us a realistic sense that there is a battle that is happening. I'm not saying that we need to look for a devil around every bush, right? That Satan's causing every little thing. But we do need to be aware there is a real spiritual battle. And Paul, using this same word, writing to the Romans, he uses the exact same word, Nike, Romans 12, 21. He says, do not be overcome by evil, and when we fight back, do we fight back a little evil with evil? No, he says, but overcome evil with good. So if you're in a situation where someone's causing you trouble and you're like, oh, Satan's behind this person, I'm going to get back at them. Right? Something maybe rises up within you, the sense of justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we're to act with good towards them, knowing that there's a battle, maybe even for their soul going on, and then blessing them takes power away from the enemy instead of giving in to ourselves. When the apostle and visionary that we're reading from and pastor, John, when he wrote his letters, he uses this word quite a, quite a lot. And he says, even when we are to test spirits, 
we might come up against. Some spirits in this world where we think, oh boy, there is, the enemy is definitely at work, I think, here. I'm not sure. He says, you. Oh, no, sorry. First of all, here it is. Yeah, this is where it is. You, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John's saying, don't be afraid. And that's exactly what he's seen in this vision. This fierce red dragon. We don't have to be afraid of it because of what Jesus said. And that's where this, is, comes, this one comes in. John 16, where he says, we're going to have trouble in this world, no doubt, but to take heart, for he has overcome it. He's overcome the power of the dragon. And we can rest in that. Now, I don't know about you. Do you remember walking to school? How many of you walked to school? Oh, a number of hands. I know probably some of you uphill both ways. Ten feet of snow. But I remember walking to school, and I was passing by a house, one house in particular, and there was a new dog sitting on the steps. And I thought, you know, me, I'm just an eternal optimist. I'm like, oh, here, coochie cook, here, puppy, puppy. Well, it sure wasn't a puppy. It started to snarl at me and growl. And as I got closer, it decided to bolt off its steps and run at me. And, you know, 50, 60 pounds of muscle and snarling mess coming right at me. Yeah, do you think how brave I was at that moment? Not very brave. I, I don't think I had to go home and change my pants, but it got closer and closer, coming right at me until the chain Oh, thank Lord for strong chains. Thank you, Jesus. Until the chain caught and it whipped its body around and it fell flat. And it did not get to me. And I was able to walk shakily to school. What happened the next day when I passed? Do you think I went off to the other side of the street? Do you think I avoided it? I didn't need to. I walked right down that sidewalk knowing that if he decides to run at me again, that chain's going to hold him back. That dog had no power over me. And I knew it. I was afraid the first time. But I didn't have to be anymore. The way C.S. Lewis talks about it is that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Peter, in Scripture, when he writes, he tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion, acting as the lion of Judah, seeking out who he can devour, to be aware. And in fact, we can be the ones who are helping others in this world. Because we know the power that has overcome. We can continue to live in the life Jesus offers us and offer that life to others. We're also going to sing. And the church of Christ was born. Then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, 
I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. We don't have to give in to the power of the dragon. We don't have to give in to the fear that he tries to put on us. The early church was facing incredible pressure and opposition. And John's vision let them know who this true enemy really is and how to face him, knowing that we don't need to fight like the world does, that we can trust in our Lord, and even if we die, we truly live. That is reason to praise. Let's pray, and then we will sing. Jesus, we lift our hearts to you. We thank you so much for this great vision that you gave John and all that we can learn from it and the reality that there is a battle going on, that we don't have to be afraid of it, that we can have a confidence in you, that you are the victor, that you are the one that's hurled Satan down, that you've written his final doomsday, and that we can live into that truth no matter what comes our way. We praise you for that. And help us to live in that power. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise where it's due. And I invite you to open your hands for a closing blessing and benediction as you go from this service. Know that though there is an enemy out there, that there is a spiritual battle, you don't need to be afraid of it, but that you have power. For the dragon has been thrown down, and you know how to overcome. Go in that power. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.